everybody. I'm the Woodmother and this is Woodmother's Workshop, a low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills. I use it to talk about my ongoing creative projects, mostly focusing on the research process for the story I'm writing called Gate City Blues. So the other day I made a singing video for TikTok and it was very obvious how fuzzy and staticky my microphone is. As a reminder, I've just been using the microphone built into my earbuds and these are a few years old. I bought a lav mic a few months ago that plugs into my iPad, and this is the first time I'm using that. I did a few tests, and there still seemed to be a lot of static and background noise, even when, to my ears, I'm recording in complete silence. The downside with this mic is that I can't use headphones at the same time, so I was looking into getting an adapter so I can use the mic and headphones. But then, my friend Hannah Sommer on TikTok told me something very exciting. In a rather fortuitous turn of events, this week on My Brother, My Brother and Me, the McElroys announced that they're teaming up with I Need Diverse Games to offer micro-grants to people of color who are trying to start podcasts or upgrade their setups. They're going to be awarding a Blue Yeti microphone and a copy of Everybody Has a Podcast Except You to five people. I was already gifted a copy of the book by one of my followers. Thanks again, Dreamweaver Cat. But that microphone is exactly what I need. I applied the other day to the program, which was very nerve-wracking. There was a question about how this grant would benefit me, and I tried to explain my podcast and my situation as best as I could within the 250-word limit. But then the next question asked, if awarded funding, how would you use your funding to benefit other marginalized members of the podcasting community via your show and community? As the goal of I Need Diverse Games is to highlight and expand diversity in the gaming industry, we wish to be sure that people receiving our funding will not only benefit you personally, but as community contributors. You should consider this question seriously and provide an actionable idea for advancing others, something more concrete than a write-up after the fact, a one-time report back to your peers, or live tweeting to your followers. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I sat... uh, for over 30 minutes overthinking that question, erasing and rewriting my answer over and over again. I kept asking myself, well, what am I doing to benefit other marginalized people? What if it's not enough? And um, eventually I just had to tell myself I'm black, queer, and autistic. I'm several marginalized identities stacked in a trench coat. And if that's not what they're looking for, then I don't know what is. They'll announce the recipients on March 21st, so I'll be crossing my fingers until then. If I'm not chosen, that'll at least give me some extra time to learn more about other alternative microphones before I commit to buying one. The Buy Pan Library on TikTok was telling me about the Blue Snowball microphone, which is like the little brother to the Blue Yeti. And I believe that's also the microphone used by Talia from the Once Upon a Time story podcast that I was interviewed for last week. So that's probably what I'd end up going with. I know so little about microphones that if multiple people recommend the same one, I'm just going to assume they know more than I do. Once I finally do get a microphone, I'm going to need a place to put it. So instead of sitting on the floor of my closet, I want to put a little tiny desk in here and a little folding chair and a light, and it can be like a proper recording booth. Now for my future Gate City Blues podcast, I want it to sound a bit like an old-timey radio drama. So I've been trying to do some research into accents because I want to make sure I give my character Cora a convincing voice. 
I want to try as hard as I can to actually capture the vocal idiosyncrasies of someone from the 1920s, specifically a black person from the South. I found clips from audio dramas from that era, but unsurprisingly, they all feature white people with a transatlantic accent. And even though the transatlantic accent was super common for showbiz at the time and really evokes the vibe of that era, it's important to remember that that's not how people would have sounded in Atlanta. Then, as now, people from New York and people from Atlanta sound completely different. And additionally, black folks have always had their own specific dialects. So I started looking into 1920s radio stations uh, to see if I could study their vocal inflections, but I didn't have much luck. Clips from Atlanta's own WSB radio station from that era would have been helpful, but I haven't had any success in finding audio footage that has survived from all the way back then. I tried looking for audio recordings of black voices specifically, and that led me on a research rabbit hole learning about the history of black radio, which I'll come back to in a minute. But the most incredible resource I managed to find was the short film St. Louis Blues, released in 1929. It was the only film appearance of the blues singer Bessie Smith, and it's available to watch for free on YouTube. It's only about 16 minutes long. According to Google, the synopsis is, a woman's gambler lover leaves her for a younger woman, culminating in a performance of composer W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues. It's a little bit hard to keep track of the dialogue because of all of the unfamiliar slang and the fact that everybody in the past seemed to talk really fast but it's been indispensable to me so far in really getting the vibe of the late 1920s. Now, I want to circle back to black radio. The reason I couldn't find clips from any black radio personalities from the 20s is because the first black-owned and operated radio station didn't open until 1949. It was called WERD, or WORD. And where did it open? Well, it's funny you should ask. It opened in Atlanta, of course. It was based in the Prince Hall Masonic Temple on Auburn Avenue, and it was one of the many historical sites I got to visit on my excursion to Auburn Avenue a few weeks ago with my mom. By 1951, their DJ, Jockey Jack Gibson, also known as Jack the Rapper, was the most popular DJ in Atlanta and is considered the father of Black Appeal radio programming. According to Wikipedia, Gibson was part of a generation of radio personalities that talked jive, or the hip-speak of the day, lending colorful, jargon-filled, and often rhymed commentaries to the listening audience in between record spins. And that fast-talking DJ patter is the precursor to rap. So black radio stations had a huge impact on black youth culture, and a lot of that history can be traced back to word. In fact, according to some folks, the word radio station is also the origin of the slang terms word, like, you know, you would say, oh yeah, word in affirmative, or even word to your mother. Word also played a big role in the civil rights movement. In 1957, following the Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. Martin Luther King formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, whose headquarters just happened to also be in the Prince Hall Masonic Temple, exactly one floor below the word offices. According to Jack Gibson, whenever King wanted to make an announcement on the radio, he would tap on the ceiling with a broomstick, then Gibson would dangle the microphone out of his window, and King would catch it from the window of his office below. The SCLC was also staffed by Ella Baker, one of the most influential women of the civil rights movement. 
On a nearby Auburn Avenue building, there's a huge mural of her painted by local Atlanta artist Charmaine Minifield. The SCLC headquarters are still there to this day, and if you turn down Hilliard Street, nestled in the side of that same building, is the Madam C.J. Walker Museum. It's the site of a genuine Madam Walker franchise hair salon from the 1930s and has a display of all the genuine tools that would have been used back then. Antique brushes, hot combs, curling irons. The museum is also dedicated to the legacy of Word and has a wall of over 15,000 vinyl records featuring jazz, blues, gospel, and other black music through the ages. My mother and I discovered it almost by accident, and when you walk inside, you feel like you've stepped into another world. The record player, antique furniture, stacks of vintage books all create the atmosphere of a salon, not just a hair salon, but like a salon in the historical sense of the word. A lounge space where artists and other fashionable folks gather together and make society happen. It's run by the colorful Reese DeForest, an internationally renowned hairstylist, beauty educator, and undoubtedly the most interesting man in any room he walks into. My mom and I spent hours talking with him and perusing his book and record collection. He's the one who first informed me that Cab Calloway had an older sister, Blanche Calloway, who was also a jazz singer, composer, and band leader. She was the first woman to lead an all-male orchestra, and her flamboyant stage presence was the blueprint for her brother's famous performance style. Who knows what else I might have learned had we lingered a little longer. I can't wait to go back to the Madam C.J. Walker Museum, and I'm looking forward to learning more from Mr. Reese DeForest. If you're in Atlanta and want to check out the museum, I've included the address and the website below in the episode description. Now, I know last week I said I was going to try to read one book per week, etc., etc. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because I'm a procrastinator. And the next book on my list, the one about the history of blues and jazz, is unavailable from my local library system, and it would cost $40 to buy it. So I spent several days going back and forth on whether to just bite the bullet um, that I ran out of time, and I wouldn't have been able to read it in time for this episode anyway. Frankly, I'm still holding out hope that some nice stranger from the internet will buy it for me because my husband just lost his job, and I certainly don't have a job, and our one car just had its check engine light come on, so... I really don't want to spend $40 on a book right now. Would mom, I hear you asking, why don't you just read a different book? And that's a very good point. I could just read a different book. I have at least 10 books that directly pertain to my research in my line of sight as we speak. But the thing is, I sorted all the books on my list into a very particular order. And I'm also very autistic, so once I get an idea in my head that things have to be a certain way or go in a certain order, it's really difficult to deviate from that. Difficult, but not impossible. So I found another book from farther down on my list that's available as an ebook from my library. It's called Prohibition in Atlanta by Ron Smith. I had that book further down on my list because I tried to sort the books more or less into chronological order as in I'd read books about vaudeville and the music history of the 1800s and then work my way up through history into the 1920s. And I thought, oh, Prohibition, that didn't come until later. But I had been thinking of the nationwide Prohibition that came after the passing of the 18th Amendment in 1920. There were several states that passed temperance laws prior to that, and Georgia was one of them. So the Prohibition era in Atlanta started a lot earlier than it did in New York and Chicago. I started reading chapter one today, and I'm really excited to learn more. 
and hopefully I'll be able to tell you all about it in next week's episode. Now we've reached the part of the show where I pass my proverbial hat around and ask for some spare change. Last week, I asked my friends on Discord what we should call this pseudo-ad break instead of the money zone, which is how I instinctively think of it, and there were quite a few contenders. I have to give an honorable mention to (laughs) reparations. While I think it's hilarious, there will undoubtedly be people who don't think so. But the winner is passing the hat. I think it fits perfectly, and it makes me think of Bert the Chimney Sweep from Mary Poppins. So without further ado... You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Woodmother, all one word. Woodmother stickers are for sale now in my Etsy shop, and you should buy one because they are very cool. If you'd like to subscribe to me on Patreon, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of cool people, is where I write all of my research notes in a log and regularly chat about my story progress. And if you'd like to get me one of the books from my wish list, I've also linked it down below in the description. The next one on my list after Prohibition in Atlanta is still Ragged But Right, Black Traveling Shows, Coon Songs, and The Dark Pathway to Blues and Jazz by Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff. And I also want to thank some more of my Patreon patrons, Mir, Meddling in Antiquity, Kat, Jacqueline, Janetta, and Jessica. A lot of J names this week. Thank you for all your support. So, real talk, this episode has been really difficult for me to write. I'm sitting here still writing the script for this episode at 8.45pm Thursday night. I should have written the script on Sunday and Monday, recorded on Tuesday, edited on Wednesday, and had it scheduled to release this morning, but I didn't. I'm starting to feel like I used to feel when I would have late assignments pile up in college. I feel like the revelation that I'm the kind of person who couldn't do my work on time was just so discouraging that I'd want to give up completely. I would pull an all-nighter and force myself to try to do a whole essay in one sitting and I wouldn't allow myself to rest until I was finished because I thought that I deserved to be punished for slacking off and that I didn't deserve to do anything else, whether it was sleeping or eating, until after I had completed the task that I committed to. But that was a really unhealthy mindset. I have severe ADHD and I wasn't medicated back in college and I'm not medicated now. It's not my fault that I keep getting distracted every 30 seconds and it certainly doesn't help anyone if I keep punishing myself for the way my brain works. The all-nighters never worked, of course, because I would inevitably get distracted and work done while sleep deprived at 3am is never going to be very good. And more often than not, I would just get so overwhelmed by the fact that I already wasn't good enough that I would just quit. And then the next day I would hate myself for it. And that's why I dropped out of college twice. And even now I'm thinking, wow, only four episodes into your podcast and you're already slacking off on your schedule? What does that say about the quality of work we can expect going forward? What makes you think you have what it takes to be good at this if you can't even do this right? But... I'm trying to remind myself of what I talked about last week. It's okay to be bad at things. In my head, I have a lot of moral weight placed on commitments. I feel like if I commit to something like posting my podcast on the same day every week, and then I fail to meet that commitment, that's a moral failing. I have an image in my head of the kind of person I want to be. You know, 
responsible, trustworthy, competent. And when the reality of who I actually am doesn't match up with that, it sends me into like an existential spiral. And don't get me wrong, it's not a bad thing to value commitments, but I need to recognize that my mindset where I try to punish myself for failing is only making things harder for me. I'm not getting paid to do this. This isn't my job. This is a completely voluntary hobby that I chose to do of my own volition. And publishing an episode one or two days late doesn't make me a bad person. Last week's episode was over 40 minutes long, and I remember thinking, ah, yes, this is a good format. This is going to be the blueprint for future episodes. And you know what? This episode is not going to meet that standard. It's going to be much shorter because I have a lot less to say this week, and that's okay. I've just got to keep telling myself that that's okay. This whole research process has been kind of scary for me because I haven't done this much reading and writing since I was in college, and as you will recall, I dropped out of college twice. So I constantly have this fear looming over me that it's inevitable that I'll fail at this, just like I failed at college, that no matter how hard I try, my best just won't be good enough. There's that quote that people like to attribute to Mark Twain, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I feel that way a lot with my projects, like it's better to not try and just suspect that I'm a failure than to put in a lot of effort and exhaust myself only to have my suspicions that I'm not good enough be confirmed. It's really difficult to feel like a stranger inside your own mind. Because it's not just the fear that I'm not good enough, whatever that means. It's like an intense panic or all-consuming paranoia that there's something intrinsically and fundamentally broken with my brain and that I can't trust my own perception. And I'm constantly fighting an uphill battle against that fear. I feel like this whole world of research and knowledge is like a vast bottomless ocean of murky water and I can't swim. I mean, metaphorically, I can swim in real life, don't worry. For the vast majority of my life, I didn't know I was autistic, so when my brain wasn't doing the things that I was expecting of it, I genuinely didn't understand why. So having to really stretch my brain to the limits of my understanding, whether it's writing an essay about a lot of abstract concepts, or trying to comprehend a scholarly article, or just reading a challenging book, brings me into this space of brain fog. And I know that that's not uncommon. A lot of people feel disoriented or unmoored or lost when they don't understand something. But for me, experiencing brain fog triggers a panic response and I get this intense anxiety that once the brain fog starts, it'll never lift again. I get a flashback to being 10 years old reading Flowers for Algernon for the first time and thinking, is this what's going to happen to me? Now, I know this is probably way too much of a bummer than necessary for this casual podcast, but I wanted to be honest with you guys about what my research process is like. And sometimes the research comes with a little bit of an existential crisis. When I was a kid and when I was in college, my biggest struggles came from the fact that I didn't understand what was happening with my brain. I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it or any examples I could look to. And it's still difficult, but at least now I have the language to describe what's going on. And that's really important. And 
if someone else listening to this thinks, oh, so that's what I've been feeling. Now I have a name for it. Then it will have all been worth it. All right. At the beginning of this section, I said it was 8.45 and now it's 10.15. It's taken me over an hour and a half just to write this much because I keep zoning out while I'm writing and compulsively refreshing my TikTok notifications. And now I'm once again fighting this vague sense of restless foreboding that goes along with mental fatigue. So I think now is as good a time as any to stop trying to come up with content. Thankfully, the next part of the show has already been written by someone else, Lucius Jones, and all I have to do is read it out loud in a jaunty voice. That's right, friends and enemies, it's time for some society slants. This week's slants are from December 6th, 1931. Morehouse cast enthralls with Macbeth. Had William Shakespeare been one of the 300 or more enthralled patrons who marveled at the Morehouse Spellman version of his tragedy Macbeth on Friday night, I have no doubt but that Bill would have smiled graciously and approvingly. Never in my life, chock full of witnessing vivid dramatization on the order of that last Friday, have I had a more favorable after-impression than was mine after living and reliving scenes with the capable protégés of Miss Anne Cook, head of dramatics at Spelman and Morehouse Colleges and directress of the Macbeth cast. That was, that was quite a run-on sentence, Lucius Jones. <laughs> It was the most masterful presentation of Macbeth I have ever witnessed. Scores of people from that cultured audience echo similar plaudits. Most of the scenes ejected convincing applause. Convincing applause. That feels a little bit like a backhanded compliment, just a bit, Lucius. The interpretations and various sundry shades of meaning were conclusive evidences of Miss Cook's prolific genius along dramatic lines. The scenery and other manifestation of art at Morehouse and Spellman stand out in the hearts of all. The costumes were impressive. So effective was the costume garb that had its rental been ten times as much, it would not have been too expensive. The characters were real, living, and natural, even in what, to them, must have seemed decidedly unconventional raiment. Frederick Mays, who is known by us all for his valor on the gridiron and who is one of Morehouse's proud seniors this year, soared to the ethereal heights as Macbeth, Thane of Cawdor and King of Scotland. I love how Frederick pulled uh, Troy Bolton and is both like on the football team and the star of the play. I love that for him. Mays's voice was flexible and clear. He had lines mastered. His stage poise was flawless, and his interpretation superb. He was, in every detail, the ambitious, avaricious, arrogant, and self-designing Macbeth painted by the pen of Shakespeare. He scored most heavily in Act Five, Scene Two, where he realized the futility of his life and was disturbed mentally by ghastly apparitions, and in Act Five, Scene Seven, where he met his death by the sword of Macduff. His dying throes as he fell to the floor were art on the highest order. Virginia Graham Pope was quite as brilliant as Lady Macbeth, pompous, cool, and calculating, and manifesting an almost masculinely strong will. Lady Macbeth, as Miss Pope presented her, lived again, vivid, lifelike, warm, real flesh and blood. 
Her acting became most superlative to her audience when in Act 5, Scene 1, she turned somnambulist and reviewed in her sleep all the threads connecting the tragic deaths of Duncan, Mr. Fernie Marshburn, what a great name, and Banquo, Mr. Marion Cabanis. <laughs> Sounds like cannabis. With the nomination of Macbeth to the throne of Scotland. Fernie Marshburn. God, that's a great name. His first name is Fernie, okay? F-U-R-N-E-Y. I've literally never heard that name before, but I love it. So all, all the society slants have such great names. Fernie Marshburn acted as Duncan, King of Scotland. Edwin Thomas mastered the role of Malcolm, who was, at the end of the tragic developments, crowned King of Scotland. William Harrison, who was convincing and deliberate as Macduff, who slew Macbeth as the conclusion, and who at times was amusing as well as entertaining. Thomas Kilgore as Lennox, Albert Jordan as Seton, Wallace Gooden as Ross, and Viola Branham as Gentlewoman were also impressive. Edward Mazik had a chance to portray his dramatic skill off the gridiron, rattling off a bit of dialogue in the final act with a naturalness that seemed daily conversation. There were also physicians, murderers, soldiers, and so forth who contributed further success to the play. Cabanus? <laughs> Cabanus. Cabanus. Maybe it's Cabanus. Cabanus played a dual role, acting both the parts of Banquo and the physician. Messieurs Tapley, Wardlaw, another great name, George Smith, and Richard Perkins as the three witches awed those in attendance. Interesting. Got some witches in drag, I guess. As a matter of fact, the key to success for the rest of the characterization depended upon the ability of this trio to create the desired weird, supernatural, and fantastic atmosphere in the early scenes. A more grotesque effect than Mr. Wardlaw, Smith, and Perkins were guilty of would require real witches. And there ain't no such animals! All of which means, gentle fans, the young men were unbeatable. Social headliner. That's that. But don't forget, all Atlanta society dances in honor of Atlanta's athletes this Friday night at Sunset Casino, 10 till 2. Remember from last week that this is a party that Lucius Jones himself is throwing that he's also advertising in the newspaper. J. Neil Montgomery, aided by nine other talented performers, will furnish the music. The affair is sponsored by this columnist and a few interested friends, and will be about the most exclusive ever to grace the casino floor. The 1931 members of the professional world and younger set who danced at the three Atlanta tennis club dances during the summer can vouchsafe for the fun in store. Invitations? Yours will reach you. <laughs> One of the significant events of the past social week was just about to go unheralded. Hail ye, hail ye, the population of our fair city has been enhanced. A little baby girl of seven and a half pounds of childish charms has been born onto Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Chun, well-known members of local society. Mr. Chun, of the Atlanta Constitution, is a sports writer of national note and a periodic contributor to the sports sheets of the Southern Newspaper Syndicate. The chubby one has been dubbed Iona Leola. Here's to Iona coming through the lips of yours truly, but representing all of the Chun's well-wishers. May she grow into maidenly fullness and marry a millionaire. 
Wow, that's a super weird thing to say about a baby, Lucius. Super weird, not gonna lie. <laughs> Black cats entertain. The rendezvous of many members of Atlanta society on Thanksgiving night with those live-wire black cats entertaining was the lovely home of Mr. and Mrs. Richard Walton, 51 Booker Street. The music of the night proved a real treat with Miss Cornelia Berry and Miss with Miss Cornelia Berry and Mr. Louis Hitchman and William Bill Brown doing the supply work. At one hour during the night, these well-known epicures tripped the light and fantastic toe to the strains of Earl Hines's dance music as it came in over the NBC network. A delicious beverage was uncorked for the spice of the program. Virtually every conceivable form of indoor mirth was withal. Black cats and guests in attendance at the Jovial were Mrs. Rosa Elegan, Hattie and Edith Wimbish, Hazel Hart, B. Durin, L. Freeman, Cornelia Berry, Norma Michael, Estelle Adderhold, Moraline Farrell, and Madame's Lovejoy, A. L. Edwards, and Gladys Walton, and Messieurs A. A. McFeeters, Richard Walton, R. Martin, G. White, H. Lyons, Christy, Lovejoy, Wright, George, Mike Haywood, and Robert and Jay McFarland. Out-of-town guests were Mr. and Mrs. Brown and Mr. and Mrs. Lucius White of Florida. Mrs. White is the former Miss Bertha Brooks of this very city. Thus ends this week's Society Slant, and thus ends this episode. Thank you to Soraya Peregrine for writing and performing the theme song. Don't forget to follow me on all my other social media at The Woodmother, subscribe to my Patreon, and as always, keep eyes and ears peeled for further developments.